Architects and AEC professionals, it's time to connect, grow, and redefine your professional journey. Imagine a place where you're part of a vibrant community, accessing resources tailored to your needs, and earning continuing education credits effortlessly. That place is here at Gable Media. Join our legacy membership, your exclusive pass to a world of opportunities. With instant access to all our CE courses and groundbreaking content, you're set to excel. And here's the game changer. Lock in your legacy membership at an unbeatable introductory price of just $29 per year, forever. Plus, enjoy contests, events, and unique freebies. But hurry, I hear this special pricing won't last long. Spots in our legacy membership are limited and filling up fast. Follow the link in the show notes to be part of something groundbreaking with Gable Media. I began to think about interviewing with Helmuth Obata and Casabon, a young firm in St. Louis. In architectural school, my professors required me to select and critique a modern building, and I chose the James S. McDonald Planetarium in St. Louis, designed by Guillaume Obata of HOK. I had visited this planetarium many times and was fascinated by the elegance of the design. The defining form of any planetarium is the dome, under which images of the night sky are projected. However, in most planetariums, the dome is almost invisible after adding the lobby, restrooms, exhibition spaces, and offices. Instead, Obata placed the McDonald Planetarium Dome as a freestanding element inside a thin-shelled concrete hyperboloid, a graceful curved shape that tapers in from the base to a narrow waist before increasing toward the top. The hyperboloid is light, elegant and appears to float above its prominent site in a corner of Forest Park. Inside, an open lobby and exhibit space surround the planetarium, allowing unobstructed views of the dome. A working observatory is located within the open top of the hyperboloid, shielded from city lights, making live observations of the sky possible. As I reflected on the brilliance of the McDonald Planetarium design, I began to think it would be a great experience to work with Gio Obata. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm joined by Patrick McLaney, FAIA, and former CEO of the international architecture firm HOK. This is Build Smart. Patrick shares stories from his remarkable 50-year career at HOK, rising from junior designer to CEO of the company. With themes of leadership, finance, people, culture, and so much more, you'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Welcome to Build Smart. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I will be your host in this invaluable podcast series where I sit down with my friend, Patrick McLamey, FAIA and former CEO, as he shares his stories and lessons from a remarkable 50-year career at the iconic international architecture firm, HOK. I interviewed Patrick on the Entree Architect podcast back in June of 2020, and then again that July. And when we were done, we each knew that there was still so much more of his story to tell. His book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm, it offers architects and creative services professionals exclusive insights and strategies for success, but hearing it straight from Patrick and his colleagues, it adds a whole new and complementary understanding to the story. 
Over the past several weeks, Patrick and I have connected over Zoom to take a deep dive into his career. From his home office in Marin County, just north of San Francisco, and from mine here in Waxhaw, North Carolina, just south of Charlotte, we discussed the stories that he shared in his book and explored additional insights that were much better said than read. I'm assuming you want this to be spontaneous, two people having a conversation, maybe with a couple of beers. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. Except we'll have to do it on every time we record in order to stay consistent. Or else... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's like, why are they so boring today? <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Are you ready, Patrick? Yes, I am. I'm very excited about this. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I love your book. I think your book is is fantastic in so many ways. Uh, I love the way that it's a story. I love the way that I learn about HOK and you specifically. And so you, you've, you've been through all of this uh, experience, growing up in HOK, going through the, the process of moving from the drafting room to running the, the, the company as a CEO. You're now retired. You are living your life. You don't need to do this, right? So why did you write this book? Mark, I'm actually not retired. I call myself repurposed. Retirement to me means a rocking chair on the front porch. And as long as I can have an active mind and my health is good, I'm going to be busy doing things. It started out very simply um, over the years at HOK, as in probably many companies with a good, rich culture, there's a culture that's told and retold with storytelling. People, instead of gathering around a campfire, would gather around the dinner table when we're out traveling together or at conferences or meetings where HOK people got together and uh, people would start to tell what we called HOK stories. And some of my friends from those days were really good at it. And uh, someone would always say, you know, these are really great stories. Somebody should write these down. And of course, nobody did. And I listened to those stories and was in, in a few of them myself, finally. And after 50 years, I had all the stories, but nobody else had written them. So I started this as a way to just tell a bunch of HOK stories. And as I proceeded with that work, uh, the idea of a book began to emerge because I realized the other ingredient that I had that could be really useful and valuable was the transition that I witnessed. You know, when I joined HOK 50 plus years ago now, the architects of the world were drawing buildings on paper, no computers. So I saw that transition and, and was participated in it. How do you evolve from this old way of working to a new way using the computer? And also, when I joined HOK, it was just one office. And I understand and recognize most architectural firms only are one office. But I witnessed the growth of HOK from one office to many offices scattered around the world and the challenges and the problems and the opportunities that that represented. And also when I joined HOK, uh, it was just architecture. I witnessed in the evolution of HOK, the diversification from just architecture to all kinds of design services, interior design, planning, landscape architecture, building engineering, and more. And then finally, I witnessed the evolution from a generalist practice, designing anything and everything, to the growth of specialized practices within the firm, things like sports architecture, 
healthcare practice and so on. And so those are good stories worth telling, not just for HLK people, but for anybody. Patrick was born and grew up in a small town in Illinois called Alton. He had an early interest in architecture, but there were no architects in his town. While in high school, Patrick heard of an architect that would be speaking at an upcoming career fair at another high school in a town nearby. He found a way to get to that presentation and found himself mesmerized by the architect's description of the practice. And at that moment, he knew it was exactly what he wanted to do. A week or so after the event, he reached out to the architect to see if he could visit the office just to see what it was like, and maybe to ask a few more questions about the profession. He turned me down flat cold, said, kid, I don't have any time for you. I'm busy and you'll just have to make your own way. I said, you know, that's just not right. It really hurt me. I had to find out by other ways what an architectural practice was like. That experience had an everlasting effect on Patrick, and it was the underlying inspiration to him for sharing his stories and his career experiences in his book and in this podcast. If ever a young architect or somebody thinking about architecture as a career ever came to me and I did this, including the times when I was CEO of HOK. I would always, always take the time to listen and to help that person understand. So you've witnessed not only the growth and evolution of a world-class architecture firm, but you've really witnessed the evolution of a profession. Well, yes, I think so. You know, when I started in the practice, architects were just beginning to get on airplanes to go see clients in other cities. They were just beginning to explore the world, basically, and bring design services to other places. You know, if you're really good at designing, let's say, an airport, well, there's a huge growth of aviation around the world. One airport and another airport, they all work kind of the same. So expertise in designing something is something the world needs. And I think the successful architect will not reinvent everything. The successful architect will build on knowledge that he or she is, has access to. I think that's an important part of uh, what the practice can and should be, and it's an important part of what the book is. And so the book is a way for you to document and tell the stories of HOK that you've learned that be, have become part of the culture of that practice, but also to be able to share some of those stories and the lessons that you've learned through HOK to other architects and, and other people. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, Mark, uh, it pains me to say this, but I think the architecture world, architecture struggling as a group, and the world needs us. The world needs design. The world needs better design, quality design. People live in and work in and go to school in the buildings that we create or the buildings that are created sometimes without architects. And, uh, I believe that all the people in the world need good design, just as we're used to good design with the smartphone or the computer or the automobile or the airplane that we fly in. We need good buildings and we need good buildings that are designed in good cities that are designed around people, not cars. And so part of this is also, uh, I think of myself as a missionary, that I want architects to take the central place that they, I think, used to have being real contributors to a healthy society. I'd love to uh, learn more about the beginning. You as a young man 
looking for a job. Yes. We've, you know, as architects, we've all been through that. If you're an architect, you've been through that moment where you're looking for that first job. How did you end up at HOK? I grew up in the state of Illinois in a small industrial city uh, near St. Louis, but on the Illinois side of the river. And uh, went to the University of Illinois. Had a good education there, solid grounding in architecture. So I was finishing up school and uh, realized, okay, I need a job. I had a, a fellowship to go to grad school at Illinois, but the fellowship money was gone. So I got in my little Volkswagen Beetle, which was the car of choice for college students in those days. And the first thing I did was I drove to Chicago, which is the major mecca for architects in the Midwest. And I interviewed with a number of firms there. And the one that strikes me in particular, I went to the SOM office. SOM has actually been successful for decades longer than HOK. So I went to their office and uh, their offices were in the old Inland Steel building that they had designed, which is a really beautiful building. It's a building with a side core. Instead of the elevators in the middle of the building, they're off to the side. So the floors were filled with light. And uh, I got an interview, went into their office, but everything was lined up on a grid. Hmm. The drafting tables, again, no computers. This is early days. We're all lined up. People were at each table, if, if somebody wasn't at their table, it had a roll of canvas rolled down over the top of the drawing. It's very old fashioned, very rigid. And um, they offered me a job, but I didn't like the feel of the place. It felt too controlled. So my search continued. I think I put SOM off. I said, well, let me, I've got a couple of other firms to interview. I'll get back to you or something like that pretty audacious for a young kid to be telling SOM, I'll get back to but you. But you knew you weren't going there. But I knew this was, you know, if I could find another job in a place that I had a good feeling for, that would suit me. So the next place I went, again, in my Volkswagen Beetle, so I went to Boston. And in the late 60s, when I graduated from university, Boston was the place with a lot of star architects and that you would read about in the architectural magazines every every month. And uh, one in particular that I remember was Cambridge 7. So I went into Cambridge 7 and I got interviewed there by somebody and I liked the place. There were some interesting things going on. There were people busy building a model and so on. And after the interview, the person that interviewed me said, well, we can't actually afford to hire you right now, but if you want to come and just serve as an unpaid in intern <laughs> for six months or so, Maybe after that, we can afford to hire you. Interesting. So we'd love to have you come on, yes. but we don't want to pay you. We'd love to have you come. Slave labor is welcome. <laughs> that was perhaps more common in those days sure, yeah. than it is today. But as interesting as the firm was, I couldn't afford to work for nothing. I had to have a job. I had to eat. So um, I turned them down and I drove back to Champaign-Urbana. I was still finishing up school. And uh, a friend of mine, Bill Velker, who had graduated the year before, had gone to work in St. Louis for this firm called Helmuth, Obata, and Kassabam, or everybody knows the firm, I think, better as HOK. And I called Bill, said, Bill, what's it like? He said, it's a terrific place. Gio, I'm, he was working in Gio Obata's design department. Gio Obata is the O of HOK and the design leader. He said, the firm is doing some really exciting work. And besides, it's like a great big family. And I was intrigued. And he said, I can get you an interview if you want to come on down. 
So I said, well, okay. And uh, drove to St. Louis again in my trusty VW Beetle, went into the lobby of the office. The office occupied a full floor of a building at 17th and Olive Street, 17 blocks from the Mississippi River. I, I remember it well. But that lobby, before I even got in the rest of the building, was busy. There were two receptionists answering the phones, and people were constantly walking back and forth across that lobby to go from one meeting room to another because a number of the meeting rooms opened up there. So it was just busy. And in those days, not everybody had a telephone. They had telephones scattered around the office. And when somebody got a phone call from a client or a consultant or something, they would announce it on a PA system. You know, Jerry Sinkoff, you have a call on line too. So there was this buzz going on of busyness and people were talking and laughing. And this was different from any place I had been. In my student days, I'd worked in the summer, a couple of summers for another architect in my local area, not the one that turned me down flat. But the drafting room there was quiet like a tomb. And uh, this place was electric with excitement. So then finally, the, the, the receptionist came and brought me into Gio about his office. And Gio, a uh, Japanese-American, was in his 40s, trim, crew cut of those days. His hair got a lot longer later. Bow tie, looked like a designer, sleeves rolled up. I mean, he always had a little pocket handkerchief, and colors and textures were really, are really important. In this series, you'll hear stories and additional insights from colleagues and a number of HOK leaders past and present. To understand more about Gio Obata, Patrick sat down with his daughter, Kiku, president of Kiku Obata and Company. My name is Kiko Obata. I'm president of Kiko Obata and Company, and we're a design firm based in St. Louis with a satellite office in London. And you happen to be the daughter of, <laughs> of the man that hired me at HOK and changed my life. Oh, well, I'm so happy to hear that. I remember a time when Gio got on the whole firm. This was after we had several offices. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, you guys aren't dressing like architects. You're dressing like <laughs> business people. And he said, look at those ties. And he pointed out to all of our yeah. ties. And, you know, I had Brooks Brothers ties and mm -hmm. so on. He said, no, those aren't architect ties. <laughs> and uh, so, so everybody went out and got <laughs> ties that were yeah. artistic and flowing and brighter colors. And I remember I was very proud. I got this one tie. And the next time he came to San Francisco, I said, Keo, look at my tie. <laughs> he says, well, that's not too bad, but you could do better than that. Just the way he was. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a guy in the in the St. Louis office, probably in the late fifties, named Bill Roop, who made ties. And he would make ties. My my dad had a whole bunch of his ties. Some of them were bow ties too. So it was a it was a thing in the St. Louis office in particular. Well, I'm very grateful. I mean, Gail literally changed the arc of my career, and uh, I had no idea, Kiku, like so many people, I think, that I would spend 50 years at the same place and grow up inside of HOK. Mm -hmm. And Gio, his office was filled with drawings and parts of models and architectural magazines stacked up in a corner. And, uh, and he had a, a glass wall so he could look out to the design studio. So we sat down and he said, tell me about yourself. I thought for sure he'd say, I'd brought a big portfolio of my work. 
And again, in those days, architects carried their work around in big portfolios that were three feet by four feet with a handle. And when you got there, you unzipped your portfolio and opened it up, and then you could show your, what we call boards to your potential employer. And boards were the illustration boards that you did your drawings and so on. And um, he didn't actually look at my boards until almost the end. He just, he said, tell me about yourself and sat there with the most intense listening, like I was the only one in the world and really listened, asked me a few questions about what I thought about this. And he finally said something like, what are your goals? What do you hope to accomplish? I said, well, I think I have some design talent. I'd like to work at a great firm and grow that talent. And he made up his mind right there in the interview that he wanted me to come to work for him. And he grabbed my arm. He said, I want you to come to work for me. We're going to do this new project in Pittsburgh. This firm is going places. I'll never forget what he said. And when can you start? And I said, well, and I called him Mr. Obata for that interview. And the first day I went to work, I changed because everybody else called him Gio. I said, well, Mr. Obata, I'm still in grad school in my, my last class at such and so. But then, of course, I have graduation. He says, forget the graduation. Nobody remembers the graduation. When's your last Thank class? God. And I told him it was a Friday. He said, I'll see you that next Monday. And that was it. That was it. You didn't go to your graduation? I did not. Oh, my God. That's terrible. I bet you that memory is very, very vivid in your mind. It's burned into my brain. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. And so he said, well, I can start you off at six fifty a month, which was pretty fair pay those days. And my father had schooled me. He said, you know, when you get a job offer a pay, always say something like, well, that's nice. I was hoping for a bit more. So I did. And Without batting an eye, Obata said, okay, let's make it 700 <laughs> And so I went to work for $700 a month. That's 8400 a year. So two weeks later, I loaded everything in, in my Volkswagen. I didn't have much. Most all of my possessions fit in the back seat, except I had a mattress. <laughs> That's not going to fit in the Volkswagen bug. <laughs> no, it does not fit in the Volkswagen. So I did a guy thing. I, I threw the mattress on top of the car of the Volkswagen and took binder twine, which is a cheap string and wrapped it around the mattress and actually ended up tying both doors together. So I had to climb in the window <laughs> finally when I was ready to go. And I drove the three hours from Champaign-Urbana, University of Illinois to St. Louis. And when I got to St. Louis, the front of the mattress was covered with bugs. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent uh, the first six months of my existence sleeping on a mattress. I found an apartment within a block of the office for a reasonable rent. The mattress went on the floor. The front of it was buggy, but I kind of cleaned them off. And I, that's how I started. And I had this idea that, well, okay, HOK is an interesting place. I'm going to learn some things here. I'll work here for a few years, get some experience, get registered, get licensed. And then I'll go out west somewhere and start my own firm. That was a kind of a vague idea. But you never left. But I never left. So there was something about HOK that kept you there. What what was it that was so unique about HOK that you just never well, left? Well, I'll tell you, because HOK was designed for me. It was designed to allow people to have a full career at one place, 
because it was growing. And every time I got an itchy foot, or maybe more properly said, I got more interested in going somewhere else. HOK gave me another opportunity. They moved me first to a, uh, an office in Pittsburgh, and then just finally to San Francisco. And I got promoted a number of times from junior designer to senior designer and so on. And I'm jumping ahead here, but basically I had opportunity in abundance for full 50 years. I, I literally walked out the door at HOK San Francisco as the CEO and chairman 50 years to the day after I started with Obata wow. after driving there in my Volkswagen. Really 50 years to the day? To the day. Amazing. 50 years. Where else can you do that? Do you think that was unique to you because you were special? Or do you think that was strategic from the partners in order to keep their best people? I think it was, uh, I don't really think, I know. It was the design of that firm. The firm was led by three people. And they had this idea to build a firm around people that the most important thing in the firm was not anything else except attracting and keeping really good people. And that, that grew out of George Helmuth's experience as a young man uh, growing up in St. Louis, which is another story. But basically, why when you, when you hire somebody that has a talent and a willingness to learn, why after a little while of learning, they become more valuable? Why would you throw those people away? Well, the reason architects do, they don't throw them away, but they lay them off because they run out of work, because they're not making enough profit or some, some reason. And HOK was built around people. And the strategy for keeping the firm going was built around attracting and keeping good people so that the people could grow up and grow in experience and become more valuable to the firm and to the firm's clients. Do you think that's still viable today? Today, young architects, and it's not only architecture, it's pretty much the entire generation. It's almost um, unheard of for someone to stick around for more than five years. They sort of have this job, they learn what they need, then they move to another job. And it's almost the way they promote themselves because each move, they move up in their position and they continue to, to grow. And that's a strategy. Yes. Do you think that's still possible to stay in one place? I think actually it's a strategy, but I think it's a strategy that's born out of lack of an alternative. When I came to San Francisco from St. Louis, 1970, that was the first branch office of HOK. There was a file of architects that wanted a job at HOK. And it was because of that attitude that, well, I'm going to go to work for, not for the firm, but for the job. I'm going to work on that project because I'm interested in that project because it's healthcare or it's an airport or it's something, or I'm going to go to work on that project because I get to be a project architect or a project manager. And um, I think that is one of the weaknesses of our practice. If you really want to get good at something, you have to do it a long time and you have to do it consistently with the right people. And I think that's one of the problems with the profession is that we're fragmented. We're weakened because of that. And uh, again, part of the purpose, going back to this very early impetus, is architects need to be better than this. The world needs us, and we're not fulfilling that need. That's where we need to go as a profession. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to talking more about the lessons that you've learned through your career at HOK, 
the lessons that you share throughout this book. I'd love to sort of wrap up this first episode with talking about some of the lessons uh, that you shared in this episode. So what are some of the, the lessons that you've been able to, to learn and can share with our audience today? As the book contains lessons, uh, every chapter, every one of these podcasts should have lessons for especially the young listeners, people who want to make a difference in their practice. Uh, first is if you're designing a firm, you want to have a vision and goals. You don't want to just start because you got a job and somebody's going to pay some fee and you're, you okay, I'm in business now, but where are you going? And then you want to have, you want to be in a firm that innovates, innovates in some good positive ways. Maybe you have a way to innovate in the way that you're sustainable or how green your firm is or uh, how well you work with contractors or any number of a thousand things. What's the alternative to that? What does that look like? Oh, that's the, the firm I worked for when I was in, in college working summers. Uh, it was a treadmill. The firm wasn't innovating. Uh, the firm was busy designing schools, which most architects did in the 60s. And uh, uh, every new grade school project, uh, they started with the old design and just uh, reconfigured to fit the, the new site. And the details and the look of the building were pretty much a repeat of the old maybe a different color or something, but there was no thinking, how can we make this better? How can we make a better experience for the children that are learning there or, or the, the teachers? There are plenty of examples of that, of architects just barely making ends meet. So when you, when you innovate, you begin to do things that set your firm apart. And you're not just anybody, you're somebody. Also, you want a firm that is harmonious on the inside, my friend Bill Velker described HOK as a big family yeah. where people work as a team instead of a place where people are crawling all over each other to advance. I'm going to become the chief designer by crawling over the backs of some of the other designers in my department or something. HO and K all preached this from the earliest days that I was at HOK. We're going to collaborate inside the firm so that we can compete more effectively outside the firm. In other words, this is a teamwork. Architecture is a team sport, if you will. That's not to say that the lone designer um, at midnight at night innovating or thinking about something wonderful, the way to solve the design problem in a building isn't valid, but it takes a team of people to actually do all the work necessary to put a building together, to make something out of nothing, which is what architects do. That's a pretty cool thing. It's the culture of a firm. And then finally, wouldn't you like to design a firm that is successful? <laughs> yes. What does success mean? Well, uh, for one thing, how about a steady paycheck? How about another measure of success is that the firm outlives the founders and there's, uh, there's enough vitality to allow a second, third, or even fourth generation of leadership to evolve. Uh, maybe a successful firm is one that has an impact on the communities in which it's serving, or it's uh, successful because it's a firm that does a lot of volunteer work in its cities. All of these things require business success to underpin, to support being uh, successful as a great design firm, as a firm that innovates, and so on. So business success is foundational. And too many architects, I think, have learned the wrong thing beginning at school or somewhere else that 
you have to kind of starve. And in order to be really good, you have to be on the edge of starvation. And I completely and totally disagree with that. I think well-fed, well-paid architects that are given a chance to work with a steady paycheck in a good environment with all the support that they need are capable of doing great work. And in my 50 years, what I learned is successful firms are also great design firms. They're also great innovators. And more often than not, they're the firms that work well on, on the inside. Yeah. The name of the book is Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. And those four lessons that you just described um, is the formula, right? If you think about it, those four pieces are the formula for, you know, when you break it all down to its basics to design a world-class architecture firm, whether you are designing a firm of one person or a firm of a thousand people, you need to have a vision and a goal, right? You need to have vision and goals. You need to have innovation. You need to continue to figure out how to do things better. Uh, you need to work as a team, right? Every project, whether you, even if you're a sole practitioner, every project is the result of many people. And you absolutely have to have that foundational uh, business structure. You have to understand how the money flows in and out of a firm, how you attract new projects to your business, how you make those conversions into contracts. All those things are necessary in order to design a great firm. And actually, when you do that, you actually become a much better architect, right? Yeah, precisely. And again, it's not complicated. It's pretty simple, but architectural education doesn't teach this. In my years at school, I had a lot of classes about design and uh, a lot of technical work classes and some nice classes about the history of architecture, which I loved. But I, I had one little class about how to actually run a firm taught by a professor that had never practiced architecture. So this is, uh, again, part of my goal. It's a lofty goal, which is to help people understand this so that they can organize themselves for a successful practice. And then all your goals, all your dreams can come true. To continue the story, come back next week for the next episode of Build Smart, where we will dive into the business concepts that would lay the foundation for HOK. And Patrick highlights one of its key founders, George Hellman. And uh, he watched his father and his uncle struggle with the firm. He called it a roller coaster. Uh, the, one or the other brother would get a project. They would hire a few draftsmen to do the work. And about the time the project was finished, the draftsmen would, would be trained by the two brothers so they could be more useful and more helpful. And a more efficient operation could proceed going forward. But if they didn't have any more work, they laid the draftsman off, went back down to the two brothers. And George Helmuth was seared by this. And they weren't poor, but they were belt tightening experiences that were quite distressing to him. And that actually shaped a lot of his approach later on to how to design a successful architecture practice. Thank you for listening. To read along and see illustrations and personal photos that accompany this series, get Patrick's book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. I encourage you to go grab a copy today and follow along as we continue the story. It's available now at gablemedia.com slash buildsmartbook. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-Media.com.
What color was it? It was blue. Blue beetle. Like a like a it. dark blue? Yeah. Blue beetle. Uh, so you had it yeah, for, for three or four years. What year was it? What what year? You're taxing my memory. 65, maybe? Bought that car in Wolfsburg, Germany at the factory. Oh, wow. So you bought it new? Bought it new at the factory in Wolfsburg. I had a fellowship called the Paris Prize to travel Europe for a year. And uh, I decided I was going to do it by driving instead of taking the rail pass route. And I drove, so I picked that car up. I, you could, you could, in those days, you could buy a car at the factory to US specs. And so I picked it up there. $1,200 was the retail price at the factory. Drove it all around Europe. Then finally ended up in Antwerp, Belgium, put it on a ship, hungered down for two more weeks uh, in Europe, and then flew back to New York City, picked it up at the dock in New York City. The customs guys that were there, they were they were waiting for a, somebody to pay them off before they would release things. And all day long, I waited there. I didn't have any money. And other people finally would get the idea and they'd slip them a couple of bucks and they'd release. So they just sit there and wait until you figure it out that the only way you're going to I get waited it was until I waited until end of the day. And I finally went in there and said, look, I don't have any money. If I did, I'd probably give to somebody, but I don't. And so they finally released it to me, but I, I had to wait all day. Hmm. Uh, and then I drove it around the U.S. for, you know, working at HOK and so on. I drove it in grad school for two or three years at HOK. And then finally, uh, I drove it uh, on the snow one day and it skidded on this. Part of it was I couldn't afford yet new tires. So much. The tires didn't have enough tread. It ended up going sideways and, and, and knocked down a street sign. So I got a big crease on one on the right side. Fortunately, not, my, not the driver's side. And uh, not long after that, I had gotten a little promotion and a little raise, $500 a month. And uh, so by finally selling that car, I think I sold it for $500. Not long after, finally gave it up. Yeah, yeah. That's a good story. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real 
to this day, I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.